Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can still gather together. We pray, to, we pray that you would watch over us and protect us. We pray for all those who in our parish who have lost people that they've loved, who are struggling right now. We pray that we would know the depth and breadth of your love, and that this we would count as worthy of leaving all behind to follow you. Help us to live lives that glorify you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Recently, I found myself thinking about something that I had to let go of. Something I had hoped for and longed for for quite some time. But in this moment, I realized it was better to let go of it. The thing I was longing for and being called to let go of was a good thing to long for, but for whatever reason, it wasn't the right thing at the right time. And it was clear that the Lord was saying, let this go. You know where I am calling you, follow me. As I thought about this thing, I became sad. And then I thought of this rich young man whom we read of this morning. We know little of him, except that he seems to be a reasonably decent person, at least outwardly, and that he had many possessions. And when Jesus told him that in order to be perfect, in order to be complete, he had to sell all his possessions and give them to the, give them to the poor, and this rich young man went away sad. Over the past couple months, we have met several people who Christ calls to himself. First, we met Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night. We don't know exactly when he ended up following Christ, but we knew, do know that he was present at the end of Jesus' life, and it would seem that by then, he would have been a faithful disciple of Jesus. Next, we met St. Matthew, who was doing his job minding his own business, and Jesus simply said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up, threw a party, and left his old life behind. And now this morning, we meet the rich young man. He comes to Jesus desiring to be what seems to be a good thing. He desires eternal life. But in that, his question seems a bit odd. He asks, what good deed? must I do to have eternal life? Jesus shows little interest in the actual question, but instead he challenges the use of the word good. And what is good? Jesus says, there is only one who is good. There is only one who is good, and that is God. The creator of the universe, the sovereign God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. God alone is good. As we contemplate the attributes of God, we can be overcome and amazed with who God is, of his infinite goodness displayed in his character. God, we learn, is infinite. He is never changing. He has no need. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is wise. He is faithful. He is just and merciful. He is 
gracious, he is loving, and he is holy. How can we be anything than less than amazed by our Lord? How can we be anything less than know that he alone is truly good? Let us therefore be convinced of his incredible goodness. But then Jesus does answer the man's question. And he tells him that he must keep the commandments. It is interesting. We often get the law and the gospel reversed. We think that if I am good, God will love me. If I am obedient to the law, I can earn his grace. If I muster up enough righteousness, then I shall be saved. Then I shall be worthy of the love of Christ. Luther and other reformers rightly taught that the law stands to condemn us, to show us our weakness, to show us of our desperate need for God, our desperate need for the grace of Christ. How can we ever imagine that we can muster up enough perfection to earn the love of God? It's like thinking that if we shine a flashlight at the sun, we could get it to possibly shine a little bit more. God, who is the creator of the universe, who fashioned you, who knows how many hairs you have on your head, who is all-knowing, God loves you immeasurably, and he sent his son to redeem you. We do not earn the love of God. We do not earn his grace. But it is by that love that he pours out and that grace that he gives us freely, we are transformed. It is through that love and that grace that we are taught to love our neighbors and to love God. It is by God's grace that we are able to pour out good into the world. And it is by his common grace that humanity does goodness. And so we need to understand the order. The law convicts us of our sin. But grace, grace opens the door to a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Christ, who is God, in, who is God incarnate, allows us to pray and to offer worship to our Father. By grace we are saved, and by grace we are sanctified. But the young man asks Jesus which commandment he must keep. Here is one of those places, as I read the gospel, I feel the urge to laugh. Surely, I think Jesus must have wanted to throw up his hands in frustration. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't laugh at the young man. He doesn't call him a fool. Instead, he simply lists the commandments about how we relate to one another. And then, in summary, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of my prayers for our church is that we would grow in how we reach those who desire to know Christ, but don't yet know him. I pray that we would reach our neighbors and those in our communities who are caught in the bondage of sin. As, I as I've been praying this, I found myself convicted that I am not terrific at knowing my neighbors. This conviction has grown as I've lately been reading The Gospel Comes with a House Key, 
In this, the author, Rosaria Butterfield, reminds us that we are called to love our neighbors no matter who they are. This call is especially hard if you wonder if your upstairs neighbor is taking dance lessons off YouTube at all hours of the night. This is especially hard if your neighbor is overly friendly and talks incessantly and you just want to go into your house for a quiet dinner. This is especially hard when your neighbor decides to turn up the bass for several hours and all you want is an afternoon nap. This is especially hard when your neighbor is nothing like you and you wonder how you could possibly love them. But these excuses do not get us out of the command to love our neighbor. For Christ first loved us. For to love them, we simply mirror that incredible love that we have seen from God. To love them, therefore, is like lighting the darkness of your house by using a mirror to reflect the sunlight. The young man is pretty sure that he's kept these commandments and happily tells Jesus this. But Jesus then bursts his bubble and tells him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. Go sell all your possessions and give all that you have to the poor. And this brings us to the big question for the day. To the question that we need to ask ourselves from time to time. Are there things that we're holding onto that are preventing us from following Christ? Are there things that you are holding on that you are in need of letting go of? The are there things that you need to sell and give away so that you can follow Christ more closely? These may simply be habits that are inhibiting you from walking with Jesus. These may be little gods that you have created in your own heart that separate you from the true and loving God. These may be beliefs that are not firmly rooted in Scripture. The call we are given is that we would trust Christ wholeheartedly, that nothing would stand between following him and our lives. He clarifies a little more, and that clarification is tremendously difficult, that it is tremendously difficult for a rich person even to enter into heaven. We shouldn't take this statement as an anti-wealth statement. Instead, we need to grapple with the reality that when you have enough money, it's tremendously easy to trust your wealth, to trust yourself and your possessions, and much harder, therefore, to see your need for God, your need for redemption, and your need to depend on Him for everything. I remember a few years back, I was curious about wealth and the world. And I discovered that even with my modest salary at the time, I was part of the top earners in the world. While we may not feel as though we're incredibly rich or wealthy, we live in a society where it's a lot harder to see God moving. We have all kinds of ways to solve whatever problems we face. You get sick, you go to the doctor. 
You want something? You dip into your savings or charge it to a credit card, and all is fine. Because we have been so fortunate to live in an affluent society, it seems as at times as though we don't need God. It seems as though we can do this all on our own. This attitude, this sentiment, is what Christ is saying. It is much easier for a rich man to trust in his own wealth than to trust in God. But rich and poor, happy and sad, the lonely and the popular, each and every one needs God. One needs to know Christ, not only so that we will enter into the kingdom of heaven or eternity, but so that we can start to participate in that kingdom in the here and now. Is all lost then for us? Is this a hope is all hopeless in our present age? Absolutely not. Undoubtedly, if we seek our hearts, we will discover a thousand things vying for our attention, a thousand pet projects, pet plans, pet hopes and dreams that we desire to accomplish in this life. And that we and in that we'll find them hard to let go of. And then what then? Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God in Christ has made a way for sinners like you and I to enter into the kingdom of heaven. By the Holy Spirit, we learn to trust in the Lord completely. God has made a way for us, and it is through Christ. God has made it possible to follow in his steps, and it is by the Holy Spirit. And then sweet and dear St. Peter, who was never afraid to ask whatever question came to mind or share whatever thought passed through his head, says, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Christ responds with an eschatological vision, a vision of how the world will be when time is complete. Christ is enthroned, waiting to judge the living and the dead. The apostles have a glorious place and will stand by Christ as judges. This is the great hope for those who have seen injustice in this world. This is the great hope for those who mourn over unrepented sin. This is the great hope for those who long for something better than the incredible brokenness that we see in this world. This, this final vision is the great hope that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So let us not grow despondent when we see evil. Let us not grow angry when the world does not go as we think it should. Rather, let us trust in the Lord. Let us hope in the Lord. Let us remember to call to th that call to fidelity and assurance that someday Christ will return to judge all people and draw his faithful children to himself. Then Christ says, And everyone who has left his house, or his brother, or his father, 
or his mother or his children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will enter and will inherit eternal life. For many to leave behind so much for the sake of Christ, to leave behind reputation, to leave behind friends, to leave behind family who ridicule and mock because one loves Jesus can be a terrible and difficult experience. And why should we even bother? Sam Alberry tells a story of talking with somebody about the call to follow Christ. And the person asks, but why should I leave this all behind? It's a pretty good life, after all. And he wasn't entirely sure what to say. And so we prayed, and this verse came to mind. And this is really, again, an eschatological promise. So great is the promise of the kingdom of heaven that what we leave behind for the sake of Christ's sake pales in comparison. That which we leave behind for his sake is but a shadow of the incredible goodness to come. Both Alberry and Rosaria Butterfield challenge us as the church to grow in how we create community, grow in how we love the other, grow in how we tenderly care for those who have sacrificed so much just to know Jesus. Butterfield beautifully summarizes this when, he sa- when she says, our brothers and sisters need to function as the Lord has commanded, has called us to, as a family. Because Christian conversation, conversion, comes in exchange for the life that you once loved, not in addition to it. People have much to lose in coming to Christ, and some people have more to lose than others. People have much to lose in coming to Christ. And yet Christ says he will return to them a hundredfold what they have lost. Our call as the church is to create a home, create a good place for those who have left behind so much in order to follow Christ. Our goal and call as Christians is to be a taste of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Christ's promise for today is a future promise, but it is also a promise that is fulfilled in part today, filled in part by the emissaries for his, his kingdom, the church. Jesus' final words are that the first will be last, and the last will be first. Immediately before the rich man comes on the scene, Christ rebukes his disciples and tells them to allow the little children to come to him. Undoubtedly, when the disciples saw this rich man, who would be a real coup for their cause, that a desirable follower was finally coming. But what good could these little children bring to their cause? What good could rambunctious little ones do for the amazing revolution that they perceived to be participating in? And Christ then ends after these two scenes with that simple reminder. Ends that we may not see the intrinsic earthly value of someone, but God sees their value. 
And there, in that truth, we must rest. We are not called to judge in the here and now, but to share with them the inestimable love that we have found in Christ. We are called to love no matter who the other is. Love those who are radically different than us. We are called to love the other, no matter how rich or poor, no matter how sweet or angry or grumpy, no matter if they are an outcast or a popular person. We see them as God sees them, as beautiful image bearers of our Creator and Lord, with whom we are to extend the grace that God has already extended to us. My friends, this morning I started with a personal story, a call to leave behind, to let go of something. I honestly don't know how that story ends. I do not know what the Lord will do with it. I do not know how the Lord will work amidst all of this. There is much that I do not know. There is much that we do not know. But I do know. I do trust that obedience to Christ is better than bucking against him. I do know and I do believe that following him, no matter the cost, is better than any earthly reward that I can imagine. My friends, having received so great a gift of life in Christ and the kingdom of heaven, let us count the cost and have assurance that to follow Jesus is far, far better than anything that this world can give. That to abide richly in him is a far more joyous thing than we could ever hope for from a flesh-driven life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today, as we pray, be in prayer for those...